God in heaven, we pray now that as we have the opportunity to hear from your word, speak to us now. We pray, God, open our ears that we might hear what you have for us. Open our minds that we might be able to understand your truth. Open our hearts that we might be able to receive it and that we might be transformed by your grace and by the power of your word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Morning, church. It's good to see you back. I wish you could say the same. I think that you need to check on your elders uh, who allowed me to come back. I mentioned that this morning to them. They said, it wasn't in our hands. Your church assigned you here. I'm sorry. Just, just a very quick word personally, because I know you get speakers come up here. You have no idea who they are, perhaps. I do know a few of you, but uh, with a name like Sparky, you know, it's kind of like Smuckers. You better be good, but I'm not always good because I'm a sinner just like you. But uh, no, I have uh, been in ministry for well over 40 years and have had the privilege of serving the Lord in that way and training preachers and teaching seminary. I uh, also um, married to a beautiful, wonderful, talented wife. Every man, I believe, after all many, many years, I can say this honestly, every man marries over his head. And uh, I certainly married over my head. And by the way, the, I understand that the guitarist and the flautist uh, are going to make a true duet soon, and so congratulations to them, and that's wonderful. May God bless you and use you together for His glory with your talents. Um, but where was I? Oh, yes, uh, I'm married to Kathy. We have three daughters. We have been married for 49 years. I'm 38 years old, and so just... Let a few things like that go. One more thing, um, and just kind of a family time sharing with you. You may be wondering, where'd you get the name Sparky? Okay. I get this all the time. I got it from birth. It's not my birth name. However, when I was born um, ages ago, it was the Ice Age, I believe. It was 1950, so do your own math. Uh, it was here in Richmond, Virginia at a place then called Retreat for the Sick. Very classy name. But my mother almost died of a hemorrhage, and they could not get a steady heartbeat in me. Took me to another room, gave me 20 minutes of closed chest heart massage. I'm told that the doctor then said, among the nurses, it's out of our hands, it's in the hands of God. He came in to see my mom, who was not doing well, and he says, I can't promise you anything about your son. All I can tell you is that he is only running on one spark plug. So he said the next 24 to 48 hours are critical. He came back in the next day, checked me out, went in to see my mom and says, well, he's improved somewhat. He's running on two spark plugs today. And the third day, he came in, checked me out, and he says, you know, I think Spark Plug's going to make it. And that was my original nickname. 
Now, for you who are older, to have a nickname like Sparkplug, you know that Snuffy Smith's mule was named Sparkplug. So that's not exactly the best name in the world. My mom cut it down to Sparky when I was about three years old. My grandmother continued to call me Sparkplug for the rest of my life, but uh, I love her anyway. And uh, so uh, I'm just thankful to God that his grace was there at the beginning. And as you saw last week, we are confident in this, that he will keep us into the day of Christ. He will hold us fast. And so may God bless us as we come this morning to hear the word of God. And may God bless us and use us together. Father, may you bless this time and use me as your messenger today to encourage the hearts of your people in this word through the Apostle Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, inspired by God. And may you, we be a blessing in all that we do and say in this, for Jesus' sake. Amen. By the way, uh, while, one more word. I want to say hi to the Edwards. I didn't get to see you last time I was here, but it's so good to see you. They could tell you stories about me, but don't ask, please. If you've ever read General Douglas MacArthur's prayer for his son, you've been moved by its passion and eloquence. He wrote this uh, when he was Supreme Commander of Allied Forces in the uh, southwestern Pacific. Build me a son, O Lord, who will be strong enough to know when he is weak and brave enough to face himself when he is afraid. One who will be proud and unbending in honest defeat and humble and gentle in victory. Build me a son whose wishbone will not be where his backbone should be. A son who will know thee and that to know himself is the foundation stone of knowledge. Lead him, I pray, not in the path of ease and comfort, but under the stress and spur of difficulties and challenge. Here. Let him learn to stand up in the storm. Here, let him learn compassion for those who fail. Build me a son whose heart will be clean, whose goal will be high, a son who will master himself before he seeks to master men, one who will learn to laugh yet never forget how to weep, one who will reach into the future yet never forget the past. And after all these things are his, add, I pray, enough of a sense of humor so that he may always be serious yet never take himself too seriously. Give him humility so that he may always remember the simplicity of greatness, the open mind of true wisdom, and the meekness of true strength. And then I, his father, will dare to whisper, I have not lived in vain. What do you think of that? It's pretty impressive in how he worded this, but it's really more like a wish rather than a prayer, isn't it? It's kind of like a hope, because when you read something like this as a prayer, it has no power to change, no resources to help. This is wonderful sentiment. I love the prayer, but it's not going to do anything for me. Wouldn't do anything for my son. I don't have a son. 
But the Apostle Paul, a spiritual father to the believers of Philippi, who was also moved to pray for his spiritual offspring, he too desired to pray to God to build men and women who would live to his glory, who would be strong in spirit, mature in their faith. This was his passion. His passion to see his children grow in the faith. He wrote this in Colossians chapter 1, a letter that was written at the same time as the letter to the Philippians. He said, Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His, God's energy, that He powerfully works within me. This was Paul's passion. This was the driving force to see people grow in their faith and their love for God. Now, returning to Philippians, we find a prayer that is shorter than General MacArthur's, and yet its richness is unsurpassed. It's far more encouraging, and it comes along with the power and promise of God to be so in your life. The beauty and the passion, even the symmetry of this opening chapter of Philippians can be seen and felt as Paul tells these believers I have you in my thoughts, remembering you. You see that in verse 3. And I hope you have your Bibles open as we work through this passage. You will need it. So in my thoughts, remembering you. In my heart, loving you. That's in verse 7. And I have you in my prayers, interceding for you, both in verse 4 and verse 9. Now, why does Paul feel so close and affectionate with these people, remembering them, loving them, interceding for them? Two things. They share a common bond, which is grace. Look at verse 7 with me. Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you, this love, this affection, this this." participation together, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for or because you are all partakers with me of grace, a common bond, grace. Listen to Paul's testimony in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because Now listen to this. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God... But God shows his love toward us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. He died for us. We are ungodly. And in doing that, he poured out his love to us and for us. Through this grace, Paul and the Philippians have been bound together 
and the love of God which has been poured out to them. And this is why that Paul can say here in verse 8, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. The, the, the affection that I have felt from the Lord, I now pour back into you, and I yearn for you. You know what that word is in the original language? It, it, it's a gut-wrenching kind of feeling. Oh, I, 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 it's not just a head love. It's a full gutted love for these people. Paul's affection and connection with these people, which had begun 10 years earlier. Now, this letter's been written 10 years after the first visit. Had endured over time, being built on this fellowship and partnership that they shared together with one another, a common bond. But number two, there was a common uh, bond in grace, a common bond in grace. So I said, for, excuse me, in the gospel. It was a common message and a common mission that they shared, the gospel. We saw this earlier when Paul expresses his thanks to God in verse 3. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day 10 years ago until now. And their commitment to Paul in the gospel stood firm both in his imprisonment, he says here in verse 7, and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. So, whether it was in rejoicing together or suffering together or defending the gospel or in spreading the gospel, Paul and the Philippians are of one heart and one mind. This is what God's people should be. This is what prompts him to earnestly pray. Not simply thinking about them, although he was thinking about them. But you see, any of us can do that. We all do that. We think about people. You know, I'm, I'm standing up here talking, and I, I see the Edwards, and I'm thinking about them, and I have all kinds of memories about that. This week, people would come to mind. I thought about you this week. But that's not enough. And it's not just feeling something in your heart about someone. We've all experienced that. This week, I've gone through a multitude of emotions, meeting people, talking to people. I've I felt everything from frustration to anger to, to, to uh, love and appreciation and tenderness, compassion. When I see people and what they're going through in their lives. But the greatest way that we remember anyone is by praying for them. And what a joy it brings both to you and to the one being prayed for to know that someone does care and prays. I had someone call me this week in desperate situation. Desperate. I, I don't even want to give the details of it. I will just simply tell you that it, it's like the end of the rope. And for this person, I said, they, they shared, they just poured out their heart and I said, let me pray for you. And they're on the phone, though miles apart, we're praying. And the prayer struck home and encouraged the heart of that person. The prayer that Paul offers is simple. So simple. We read over it so quickly. Because Paul puts prayers all over the place, right? It's just another prayer. And yet it is profound. 
And I see it as a progressive expression of his desires for each of them. One thought will build upon another, and they're all woven together in grace. Or we might compare it to a musical score where Paul states his theme or motif at the very opening line of the prayer, and then it builds and builds and builds to a crescendo. I want you to look at your Bible or listen very carefully as I read just the prayer again and see if you can pick up some of this momentum of the prayer. And it is my prayer that, you, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Can you feel that? Let's talk about it. First point, if you're, if you're taking notes, you see Paul's burning passion, love that abounds. His burning passion, love that abounds. Verse 9, look at the first part. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. The word and actually takes us back, picks up the thought of when prayer was first mentioned in verse 4. Now he's going to pick up and tell them what that prayer is. I've been praying for you a lot. In fact, every day. Every day I think about you. Every day I pray for you. But now let me tell you what I'm praying for in your lives. Paul's assumption is when he says, I pray that your love, it's that these people do know the love of God and his love is, this love is evident in their daily walk and toward one another. Because they're partakers of grace, there is love that is present. And that love has been clearly demonstrated in their gifts to the Apostle Paul and his needs as well, and in supporting him through his various struggles and triumphs. That being the case, you would think that Paul would not have to pray for the people for their love because they've already got it, right? We got it, that love thing down. You don't need to pray for that. There's some other things you need to pray for. No. Paul doesn't want them to sit on their laurels, to rest on what they have done, to say, I've arrived. Instead, he wants them to go above and beyond what, he has already, what they have already experienced in love. Love was not to be a one-off experience for them. In addition, he, he knew how susceptible that we, I am as well, of growing lukewarm and even cool or cold toward others. Do you remember what is said of the church at Ephesus that was just a lighthouse for God, what it said in the book of Revelation? You have left your first love. You've lost it. Paul realized how foundational love is to everything else in our faith. After all, as he would point out himself, Love is the first item mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Remember that? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love and joy and peace, and he goes on. Love is the summary of all things. For instance, in Colossians 3.12-14, 
He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, also you must forgive. And above all, all right, let me, let me get to the, the thing that's going to bring it all together. Above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Is love important? Yes. Is he wanting to excel in their lives? Absolutely. And in fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, talking about the gifts to the church. He says, and now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is Love, it's okay to talk. I know you're Presbyterians, but it's okay to talk back. You see, love is important because activity, if I'm just going around busy and doing things and I do not have charity, then that's nothing but busyness. Faith without love is empty. A church without love is hollow. We need to reflect the love of God and our love for one another. Paul prays that, This won't happen at Philippi. The love that these believers needed to have was be one that would overflow from the love of God itself that has been shown to them through Jesus Christ. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India who served 55 years there without a furlough. 55 years, no furlough. And as she was serving there, she she started orphanages and loved others, cared for others. She expect, expressed her heart about love this way. If I belittle those whom I'm called to serve, talk of their weak points in contrast perhaps with what I think as my strong points, if I adopt a superior attitude forgetting that God said, who made thee to differ? And what hast thou that thou hast not received? then I know nothing of Calvary's love. If I take offense easily, if I'm content to continue in a cooled unfriendliness, though friendship is possible, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. If I feel bitterly toward those who condemn me, as it seems to me unjustly, forgetting that if they knew me as I know myself, then they would condemn me much more, then I know nothing of Calvary's love. Do you know Calvary's love? Is it manifest in your life? While the Philippians' love was was evident, he desires that their love would increase and overflow, even as Jesus taught that we should love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all our mind, with all of our strength, and to love one another. He said these are the two greatest commandments. It sums up everything in the law and the prophets. Yes, they possessed love, but they had not arrived. None of us have arrived. Even the Apostle Paul here, regarding his own spiritual life, served as an example to them when he wrote later in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, 
But one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, I'm reaching forth to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, Paul here was saying, yes, you love. Yes, I love. But are you growing in your love? Are you reaching forward and pressing ahead in your love? Now, he says, I want you to love more and more. Some people read this passage and, and they begin thinking, oh, this is so wonderful. I, I just love it that we, that we can love more and more. Sentimentality slips in. But what kind of love is Paul really talking about here? That's why Paul adds something to the prayer that helps us to define and refine his thinking on what love really is. So your second point is Paul's wise balance, and that is knowledge that discerns. Knowledge that discerns. Here's the balance. William Hendrickson wrote this, Fully developed love never travels alone. It is accompanied by all other virtues. And here, at the very foundation of love, Paul prays specifically for love with knowledge and discernment. That is, it must be always in the sphere of love and discernment as well. David Strain points out that Paul marries love and knowledge together. Very important mates and companions. You see, we live in a world that exalts sentiment, emotion, feelings. If you're on social media at all, you see it all the time. How do you feel? Doesn't it make you feel good? Oh, you feel bad. That's not good. This is the way we tend to look at love today, and there's a very grave danger here of overemphasizing things. Now, our, our, our love, our emotions, our feelings are important, but they must always be brought within boundaries. They must always be showed with with. Like a river, this love flowing more and more, The river, a river needs boundaries. We've seen enough this past year of rivers overflowing throughout America from storms, right? When there's no boundaries, it can destroy. But when controlled, it becomes a powerful force for us and a life force for us. So this prayer reminds us that love and knowledge should be not and must not or should and must be linked together knowledge will add depth strength and direction to love so what's the knowledge he's talking about just accumulation of facts no paul is here praying for personal intimate knowledge of god and of the lord jesus christ and as we come to grips with the love of God, both his love for us and our need to love him, our own love grows and abounds. In order to love one another, we must love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As I mentioned earlier, this becomes, comes to us through the word of the gospel, through the means of grace as we participate in worship with God, Reminding ourselves of his abounding grace, mercy, and love to us every single day. Every day we need the gospel in our lives. As Paul also wrote to the church in Colossae, Walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being 
fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul wants them to know God, not just the facts about him, but to know him personally, to experience him. So as we read the word and we sit under the preaching of the word and participate in the sacraments, the spirit of God draws us ever nearer to our God, enriching us as we bathe ourselves in his love. Oh, how he loved you and me. And this knowledge is not just an accumulation of our notes and our outlines and what the pastor said about God. It's the truth that finds footing in the way that we live. And that's the point, as you look on here, beyond what he says about knowledge, to include with that discernment. This specific Greek word that Paul uses is found only here in the entire New Testament. It refers to depth of insight, both intellectual and moral, in principle and in practice. It's taking what you learn from your relationship with God and then putting that into practice in your life daily. But here is another passage that uses, that there is another passage that uses this form of the word. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a companion word. It's got the same root to it. But if you look at Hebrews 5 and verses 12 to 14, there the writer challenges believers to grow with these words, and boy, they are very convicting. I look at my life, and I think, where am I in this passage? Hebrews 5 verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. I can't give you the good stuff, he says. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But, now here we're coming to the point, listen carefully, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their, here comes this word, same word, or similar word, same root, as he uses over Philippi, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. In other words, our love for God that is taught by a knowledge of God teaches us how to live for God, to discern what is good, to discern what is evil. Your knowledge of God and his word should always lead to this discerning heart and mind, which will produce a strong, mature believer who not only knows right from wrong, but chooses right from wrong. You see, it's love and knowledge and discernment that takes us along the right path. One man summarized it this way, we need to love the Lord and love his people with a love shaped by the gospel and by biblical truth, modulated by spiritual discernment and ethical wisdom. Does what you know about God affect how you live? Will you leave here today with a, a different perspective and a different commitment than when you came? You see, that's at the heart of what Paul prays next as we learn something else. Point number three, Paul's sincere desire, choices that excel, choices that excel. Now, all of this, he says, a love 
that is increasing more and more that has knowledge and discernment as its banks. He says, so that, verse 10, you may approve what is excellent. Here is the result, notice the so that, that abounding love and discerning knowledge bring to the table, proving, approving, and choosing things in life that matter. Choose excellence in life. Now, if you go to your computer this afternoon and you type in the word excellence, oh, you're going to get a lot of stuff that comes up on being excellent. Leadership in sports, in business, in management, how to live a life of excellence. The emphasis is on a better you here and now. And frankly, what is truly excellent is a life and living a life that pleases and glorifies God, not yourself. You see, choices matter. More than anything else in life, choices matter. It may be that there are... Uh, let, me, let me preface this. This is a quote from the Christian Medical Society Journal that I picked up years ago. I love this. Because, you know, there, we live in a world where there's always choices to be made. Well, it may be true that there are two sides to every question, but it is also true that there are two sides to a sheet of flypaper. And it makes a big difference to the fly which side he chooses. Okay, which side of the paper do you choose? Because that's true in our life. There's some pretty sticky sides to life that if you choose, you're going to get stuck and will be consumed by it. Life is made up of choices before us every day, every hour. Choices between good and evil, good and better, better and best. As Joshua said to God's people, whom God had redeemed and blessed with a rich inheritance, just like us, choose you this day whom you will serve. There's a choice to be made. There are gods all around us wooing us to serve them. Oh, maybe it's success, maybe it's money, maybe it's material things, fame, lust. But you know what's the, the greatest temptation, the, 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 the most vocal God that reaches out to us? Ourselves. Please yourself. Glorify yourself. Build yourself up. For Paul, he prays that God's people will choose what is best. And what is best is to love God, to trust God, to serve God, to read His Word, to love the church, to love our brothers and sisters, to love our wives, to love our children, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is the path of excellence for believers. We offer a counterpoint. We're a counterculture in the world. We don't live for ourselves and for our glory. We live for the glory of God. So, our path is when our love abounds, our knowledge enriches, our discernment sharpens, and our choices excel, taking us to verse 10, the latter part, and we see Paul's strong assurance 
character that shines. He says, you walk this path and character will shine before the world. Notice verse 10, approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. When you choose to live a life of love in the light of God's wisdom and make choices that excel in pleasing God and not yourself, then there's a certain outcome or outcomes that follow. The first is, notice here again, verse 10, is purity. Or as you heard this morning in a different translation, sincere. You know, we want people who are sincere, don't we? I, I know people who are so sincere. I know people who are sincerely wrong as well, right? What is this word really saying to us? This word sincere gives a very graphic picture of what Paul has in mind. It means judged by sunlight. And let me illustrate. Our English word sincere is a borrowed word from the Latin. Two words, sine sera, and we get the word sincere. Sine sera means without wax. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, sometimes in the ancient world, as they were working with pottery, maybe making a cup or a vase or a pitcher or a dish, and then they would put it into the firing process. During the firing process, there were times it would crack. There was a flaw. And rather than just pitching the cracked piece into the trash, some would try to conceal and hide the flaw by sealing the crack and then painting over top. They would put wax in there to fill in the holes and then paint it. No one would ever know, right? But a wise buyer would hold up the vessel that he's considering up to the sunlight. And as he held it up to the sunlight, the light then would expose the flaw and become visible. Now, a good trader would be sure that he never did that. And so in the ancient world, again, when they were making their pottery, if it was perfect, they would put on the bottom, sine sera, sincere, authentic, the real deal. This is what Paul is looking for in our lives. This sense of purity. We're genuine. We're authentic before a watching world. But he adds to that, not just simply pure, sincere, but blameless. Now, there are two ideas behind the word blameless. It can mean to be without offense or without stumbling. We don't want to offend, and we don't want to stumble in our lives. Or to add this texture to it, not only us not stumbling, but causing somebody else to stumble. He is praying for them to live this kind of life, a life of integrity, a pure testimony for God. You see, because of our love for God and others, we make the right choices through the knowledge and love of God and seek to be pure not stumbling, and therefore not causing our brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble into failure themselves. And all this is sought because of and in light of 
the coming day of Christ that he mentions here. This event has already been mentioned back in verse 6. It's obviously important. It's obviously something that's out there for us that he puts before us as a challenge. The day of Christ is coming. You remember what it said in verse 6? I think Levi was here preaching on this. And I am sure this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Then it will be sincere and blameless. So God will bring ultimate perfection in that day. But Paul prays that in the meantime, we might see our progress in the gospel, our growth in grace, and increase and be apparent here and now until that day. And therefore, Paul declares that in this way, God's people, verse 11a, God's people will therefore be filled with the fruit of righteousness. The verb is stated in such a way as to look back on something that has begun. You will be filled. It started at some point, and this is just going to keep rushing in you. This, this knowledge of God and this righteousness from God is going to be flowing through you continually until that day. The excellent things for the child of God is to live in purity without offense, filled with the fruit of righteousness. And so, look at the connection. God's work that he does in verse 6 is also the fruit of his righteousness, his righteousness in us, verse 11. And note this added note in verse 11, latter part, that this comes, this fruit of righteousness comes through my efforts? No, through Jesus Christ. It comes through and because of him being in us and us in Christ. That's the gospel. And so let me remind myself and all of us that we can't do this on our own. I cannot live the Christian life on my own. I've been a pastor for over 40 years. I got it down, right? Wrong. I need it every day because Jesus said, without me, you can do some pretty good things. Now, some of you are shaking your head, some of you are laughing at me, and some are saying, let's not have him again. No, it's saying, without me, you can do nothing, nothing. And that's what Paul writes and says in his prayer here. It's a prayer, not, it's not, it's not a list of commandments to us. Pick up on that. It's a prayer to God. It is what God does in us. It's not a spiritual checklist for us to mark things off. It is to be our spiritual pursuit in which we seek God's help and strength to fulfill in us. Again, let me quote David Strain, who says this, Christ is both the means and the end. Righteous fruit comes only as I run to and rest in and cling to and depend on and savor and cherish and hunger for more of Jesus Christ. What's your passion and hunger for today? Let's see. It's getting late. What are we going to have for lunch? What are we going to have during the game? What's your passion for? Is this your prayer? 
And finally, Paul's ultimate purpose in all of this, Paul's ultimate purpose, verse 11b, lives that glorify. Lives that glorify. The difference between activity and maturity, activity and maturity is simply this, activity brings glory to man. Wow, you know, that person must be a really good Christian. They're involved in this and this and this and this and this. I see them everywhere doing all these things. They must be a great Christian. I wish I could be a Christian like that. Sometimes it's simply Martha serving rather than Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Activity brings glory to man. I've heard this comment at times, um, wow, you must be a good person. No, I'm a bad person. Oh, you have a good heart. <laughs> no, I've got an evil heart. But maturity points to God. Maturity brings glory to God. My activity can bring glory to myself. Look what I did. But maturity says, I want to glorify God with everything I do. And that's why I do it. It goes to our motives, doesn't it? Paul's prayer prays that uh, this is the sole purpose of what we do. Father, it is for your glory, for your praise. As God blesses us and works through us, we return our thanks, our praise, and give him the glory that he is due. He alone is due. The fruit that might be seen in us isn't so that we can boast or others can praise us. No, the one who has called us, saved us, sanctifies us, enables us to live for him is to receive all that glory. As Paul offers his own praise elsewhere. Romans chapter 11, verse 36, as he thinks about God's marvelous love to him and for his people, he says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. Amen. He explodes there in doxology. And our lives should explode in doxology and praise to God for how we live to his glory by his strength and by his grace. The Westminster Shorter Catechism reminds us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we tend to glorify ourselves and enjoy all of our activities. Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and pat you on the back. No, misquoted again. They may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. John 15, 8, by this, the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Ephesians 1, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. He's working all things according to the counsel of its will, that we who were the first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. That's why God saved you, is to glorify him forever. So here's a prayer, the answer to which always brings glory to God. And so as we conclude, I want to encourage you to do something as God's people. I know some of you won't do this, 
but I'm going to encourage you to do something. I'm going to encourage you as God's people, as partakers of God's grace together, as those who belong to a fellowship of the gospel and those who live in the community of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ here to pray this prayer, to pray this prayer every day this week, to pray this prayer for yourself, to pray this prayer for your family, to pray it for God's family here, for this local fellowship believer and their leaders, because Paul is praying for the leaders too, if you look back at verses 1 and 2, to pray that all the saints in this place would have a love that abounds more and more, guarded and grounded by a knowledge of God that leads to a godly life and making wise and excellent choices that produces purity, integrity, and righteous fruit. And as we look to and wait for the day of Jesus Christ, all to the glory and praise of God, may this be our prayer. Amen. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we are so often guilty in reading your word just to pass over words in the, our familiarity with them or thinking, let me get to something really important. But Paul's prayer for his people is so important because it's his prayer and even God's Christ prayer for us as our intercessor. Lord, I ask that your love may abound more and more at Evergreen, but help it to be with knowledge and discernment, doing what is right, doing what is best, choosing what is excellent, so that your people will be a pure people, not stumbling or causing others to stumble because they are looking to the day of Christ and they want to bring glory and praise to their God. So fill us with your fruit of righteousness every day. Fill us with your grace every day so that it will be all to the praise of your glory and your grace. And this we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you'll take your bulletin and let us confess our faith together.